New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. ancient Chinese proverb warns, if we do not change direction, we are likely to end up exactly where we are headed. What scientists are now finding at the farther reaches of every field is transforming all the basic premises about the nature of matter and reality. The universe is not a world of separate things and events, but is a cosmos that is connected, coherent, and bears a profound resemblance to the visions held by all the great spiritual traditions. The physical world and spiritual experience are both aspects of the same reality. Humans and the universe are one. It's all connected. What happens to one part also happens to the other parts, and hence to the whole system. How the Universe Works serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Irvin Laszlo. Irvin Laszlo, at the age of nine, was recognized as a child prodigy on the piano, and by age 15 was performing throughout the world. He's the holder of the highest degree of the Sorbonne in Paris and the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2001 Goya Award, also known as the Japan Peace Prize, the 2005 Mandir of Peace Prize, and nominations for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 and 2005. He is a former professor of philosophy, systems theory, and future studies, and founding president of the international think tank, the Club of Budapest. He's the author of more than 70 books, including The Chaos Point, The World at the Crossroads, and Science and the Reenchantment of the Cosmos. Join us for the next hour as we explore where we are, how we got here, and where we may be headed with our guest, Irvin Laszlo. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Irvin, welcome. Very nice to be here, Michael. Irvin, I'd like to go back to your childhood. You you grew up in Budapest, and that was right. That was during the pre-Hitler. Um, and what was going on then for you? When you well, were... it was even under Hitler yeah. to some extent. Yes. Uh, to, in fact, he came to power just about when I was born. And uh, so I, was, I didn't. I ignored all that. I didn't know anything about politics. I know that I was caring about it uh, until the last uh, six months of the war when Budapest was besieged uh, by the Russian troops, the Red Army all around it, a German garrison was stuck inside. Before that, they were uh, emigrating, they were deporting the, uh, the Jews and uh, all liberal elements 
to Auschwitz and, and Berchtesgaden and, and quite a lot of other people in other places in Germany. And then for the last six months there, we had to struggle for survival and just and just managed, of course. And that's when I realized what uh, world politics can do, what humanity is capable of in bestiality. So in some sense, that that, that time um, really put you on the quest in some ways for in, in your life's work. Well, I had I had a heavily charged childhood from family side, you might say, uh, because my mother was a piano professor and my uncle was a philosopher. So also my childhood, uh, a couple of hours a day, I would uh, work on the piano under the supervision of my mother. Then very soon I entered the music academy when I was seven already. Uh, and then my uncle got hold of me as, as often as possible and went for a walk on the park. He was telling me about the problems that he finds and the issues that one should know about in the world, where we are going and how different ways of, of, find, of, of thinking about it. And so I got both sides. In the beginning, it was all music. I was launched in a professional career. Nobody thought I'd do anything other than become a musician. I didn't think so myself. But then later on in my teens, all of a sudden, these questions that I had as a child, as a five, six, eight, ten-year-old, you know, uh, all of a sudden came back onto the surface. And I started reading. I started attending courses. And then, where was this? Where was this, Urban? Well, in various places in the world. You see, I was 15 when I left Hungary. I was sent by. Uh, this was just after the war, and just before communist communism came into Hungary. Um, it was in late 47, uh, and there was a music competition in Geneva, where uh, Hungary, uh, as a country that's proud uh, of its musicians, of its artistic heritage, wanted to be represented. So it was fairly closed down. It was not strictly Iron Curtain, but very close to it at that time already. So you couldn't travel out. But the state named a small group of musicians who could go out, and I was among these musicians. So they let me out, uh, and because I was 15 years old, I could have my mother with me. And uh, we had one suitcase, each of us, with the idea that our visum and our passports expire in three weeks, then we come back. And we went out to Geneva, and I, so happened I got the prize there, and then the state of Hungary decided that this is good publicity for the state, and so they gave me a medal and allowed me to continue without reprisals on my father and on the family who was still staying back in Budapest. So we went down to Paris and then to New York, and I went to the Columbia University in New York. I went to the New School for Social Research, uh, wherever I could find uh, young people plus the, the courses, classes that would give me some indication of the questions that I would increasingly ask. It's been an amazing time for you. Can you describe how you felt at the time? What was it like? Well, uh, to me, it was amazing to plop into the middle of a very Hollywood-like career. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I got to... Well, first of all, it was already a big shock to get this prize and to come out from a sheltered life in Hungary. I would play concerts there, but, you know, limited number, five to ten concerts a year because the, my parents were careful not to exploit me. And I did go to school in Hungary. Other than that one year, a better part of a year when we were under siege, otherwise a fairly normal childhood. 
one of my big loves was ice hockey, for example. You know, so I could uh, live not far from a, from an ice rink. So we could, we could do that too. I would go to school and I would play ice hockey and I would play the piano and so on. But <clears throat> when I got out, then I had uh, the first big shock as winning this prize in Geneva. Then I was invited to in Europe to various places, mostly to Paris and France, and then to give a debut recital in New York, which I did, and that uh, blew up into a real media event because the New York Times and at that time the Herald, the New York Herald, it was called, came out with words that were designed to make it a sensation, you know, and uh, things, things, things like that. Few peers among pianists of any age and things like that. You're not 15 year old. Yes. And uh, so this was a, quite a fantastic time. And my first reaction was actually uh, almost a nervous breakdown. I started getting headaches. This was too much. And, and I imagined that I have a brain tumor. And uh, they put me out into Vermont uh, to rest sort of for a couple of months. I gradually got over it, but I had a rough time actually for several months. It was just too much happening, one thing on top of another. Then I settled down into a concert career in the U in uh, in this country, uh, whereby I would play forty to sixty concerts a year. Sometimes, some years higher higher than that. There were some people that that influenced your 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 career. I'm thinking of Ilya Prigogine for one, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, um, Eric Jantz, uh, and others. Can you talk about those influences? Well, when I started asking questions of the kind that I ask, I was not looking for answers in terms of the specialty-based uh, sciences. I, th I turned to science because I thought that's the most reliable yes. kind of answer you can get. But I soon realized that it's, it, you, don't look, if you, you don't look at cosmology in terms of how you measure radiation from distant stars and things like that, you see. That I was asking more about relationships between different phenomena, between the physical world, the living world, the social world, and so on. So I look, was looking for something integrative, integral. And one of the philosophers that I came across very soon in New York, already may have been 19, 20 years old, was Alfred North Whitehead, who wrote what he considers his uh, organic metaphysics, based on the notion of an organism. The organism is uh, is a universal concept for him. You know, a cell is an organism. A society is an organism. Of course, all living beings are an organism. In a way, the universe as a whole is a giant organism. And this predated the concept that I later discovered, uh, which is the concept of a system, of a dynamic system. But Whitehead was a tremendous influence. I, I read it very, very carefully, and I started living an evolving organism. I started looking at things. I would look out the window. I would see not a tree, but like the Hopi Indians, I'm told, you see a, a, a thing that is becoming a tree, that is tree-ing, sort of, you know. Yes. Everything is moving. Everything is developing. Nothing, nothing is static, you know. So that was a major influence. And when I started working on uh, writing and taking notes, I mean, those uh, initial ideas were all based very much on an evolutionary organic metaphysics. Yes. And that led you to Prigogine, I think, at some point, and then also yes, it led me. Salk. It led me first to, to <coughs> Yale University, when you invited me. At Yale, I met uh, several colleagues, uh, W uh, FSV Northrop, Henry Marginal, 
And they told me about uh, a, an Austrian biologist who was developing the idea of a system as applying not only to organism, to biological organism, but to everything, all things. And I realized that what I was calling organism, what I didn't know what to call actually, that actually has been already uh, named very well as a system of a general kind. You know, there are specific varieties of systems, but also a general system law applies to all kinds of systems. And this was Ludwig von Bertalanffy. And with Ludwig von Bertalanffy, I learned that how you can look at uh, quite different phenomena in terms of the same basic laws, same basic processes. How does an organism evolve, a living organism? How does a, a financial system evolve? How does a galaxy evolve? There are certain things that they share in common. And uh, a great help on this was, of course, an important step when I met Ilya Prigozhin, because from Bertalanffy, I, I learned how to compare organisms in terms of their self-similarity uh, of the different processes. And uh, from Prigozhin, I learned how these organisms change over time. In fact, how they undergo a process which is he is called bifurcation, which is increasingly being used today, which I'm using very heavily these days, because it's a process that tells you that these complex systems, and can be a society, can be a whole culture, can be an individual, can be a company. They evolve for a while, they change and develop in a fairly de dependable, linear manner, and they reach a critical point. At that point, something sudden happens. They can't yet evolve anymore in the same way. So they can't go back either. It's an irreversible process. So you have to change direction. If you fail to change direction, the system will collapse. And that was the initial insight that I got from the works of Prigozhin and my, with my, uh, through my discussions with him. I'm speaking with Irvin Laszlo, author of The Chaos Point, The World of the Crossroads, and also Science and the Reenchantment of the Cosmos. If you'd like more information about the work of Irvin Laszlo, you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Irvin Laszlo. Irvin is the author of a number of books, quite a few, actually more than 70. One's called Science in the Akashic Field, An Integral Theory of Everything. Um, pretty amazing title. We'll find out more about that. Also, The Chaos Point and Science and the Reenchantment of the Cosmos. Um, actually, Science in the Akashic, An Integral Theory of Everything. That's uh, pretty, pretty, pretty imposing, An Integral Theory of Everything. Well, you know, physicists have been trying in the last several years now to find a theory, which they call an integral theory of everything, which they call actually the theory of everything, the TOE, uh, which would 
bring together all the laws of physics into a single equation, which they hope could be as embracing as, as E equals mc squared, the Einstein equation. They haven't found it so far, and they're struggling with many different uh, uh, dimensions. They need 11 dimensions, and how to reduce it to four, because if they reduce it to four, all the, even the four disappears. <laughs> uh, the, prob uh, the problem with that is that whether or not they'll succeed or not, uh, my claim is that it will be not a theory truly of everything. It will be a theory of physical things. Because like Stephen Hawking and others point out, uh, in physics at the present time, in, in this kind of framework, is not able to encompass the phenomenon of life, much less the phenomenon of mind, of course, consciousness and culture. And I'm taking a different tack. I'm saying that it's possible to encompass all of the things in an evolutionary perspective. I'm not looking forward to putting things together, how they exist at any one time, but find those basic laws and regularities that generate complexity from much simpler beginnings. How does mind, how does a living organism fit into the physical world picture? How does our consciousness relate to the world? These are the kind of questions that I ask. And by making one particular assumption, which is a thing for which I, I present quite a lot of evidence, uh, I'm able to incorporate uh, these higher levels of evolution into the basic physical picture. You, you mentioned mind, and also you've, t you've mentioned dynamic energy. And you, you said it is only uh, transformed from one form to another so that nothing is lost in the universe. And so I'm wondering how you how how do you describe mind? Well, my basic assumption is that the the uh, the fundaments of our foundations of the cosmos. You ask, what is the substance? What is it made of? And the original idea was matter. You know, ever since Newton came up with his with his view of the world and his laws of motion, the idea was what there is are this is matter, which is conceptualized as points of mass, mass points moving about in space, and space is empty and otherwise inert, and, and that's all matter. You know. Now, <clears throat> relativity changed all, all that, uh, and now we know that uh, mass is really an element in space-time, and uh, that is very relative to what is happening to the rest of space and time integrated together. But I do make another assumption, which I think is increasingly coming to be accepted, not, because, not just because I'm making it, but because I'm leading physicists as well, is that in addition to matter, the main element of the universe is energy, and not only energy, but what we call information. Information is there not only in where we talk, and not only as we get on the air, not only as what the, the printed world, uh, but information is there in nature. In, all, in the whole cosmos, information is absolutely essential. Think of the cosmos as a giant, uh, a computer, and it, its hardware is, is the particles, is the cells, is the molecules, is, are the galaxies and stars and so on. But this hardware alone wouldn't do anything any more than in a computer the hardware does anything. You need to have a software for it. The software gives the instructions what to do with this. So information is coded into the universe. The universe has an intelligence, has a, a direction of its evolution. <clears throat> it has a preferred ways that in which everything evolves in the universe, from quanta to molecules to organisms to galaxies uh, to probably entire universes evolve in certain specific ways. And this is the software 
of the universe, and this is information which is present from the Big Bang and even from before, because I'm convinced this is not the only universe that ever was. This was born within the framework of a vaster, greater universe. But it's there, it has been there, and uh, by building this <clears throat> information into our world picture as fundamental, we can, I think, integrate the phenomena. We can find how things, how one thing leads to another. Well, I think science has also recently discovered through the help of telescope that the universe is continuing to expand. It's continuing to go out, uh, and we don't know how far it goes. Well, it's a great surprise, you see, because uh, it came up in the last few years. We know that the Big Bang, whether it was an only event or not, we can talk about it also because that's also a question. But in any case, our universe was born in an, in an explosion like that. Uh, and since then, the galaxies, all things in it, all stars have been flying apart. Now, but there is also gravitation between these galaxies and between the stars and all the masses in, 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 this, in, in the stars. And these elements pull things together. So as the universe flies apart due to gravitation, the initial force that's uh, that pushing them apart should be slowing down. <clears throat> the speed of expansion should be slowing down. And it was assumed that it does that until the observations at the very edges of the universe with distant galaxies. It turns out that these distant galaxies are actually receding. They are, they are being blown apart and we don't know why people are talking about uh, a, a force uh, that is uh, responsible for this, and this force is usually located in the in space. So I think this is a very important factor because the uh, receding of the galaxies, the expansion of the universe is just one of many elements that point to the fact that space indeed is not empty, that space is the most full is the most vibrant, the most dynamic thing that there is in reality. And everything emerges out of space and then eventually falls back into space. You mentioned, you wrote, uh, the search for meaning is the basic attribute of the human mind. Uh, that's, a, I mean, that, that's a very interesting uh, comment, commentary. And so we're actually searching for meaning. We have, it's innate in us. Well, you know, if you measure... Uh, what actually our eyes are seeing. It's called the optical array. We don't, we wouldn't even see objects in that thing. They are uh, what the Greeks already called the blooming, buzzing confusion. Uh, we have a series of light patterns, light and shape patterns and different colors constantly moving, constantly uh, uh, changing. Every time you move your head, uh, the entire pattern changes somewhat, you know. And yet we see objects and yet we identify things. And this is already built into our nervous system, into our brain. So perception is not really just opening your eyes and ears and, and perceiving what there is. Perception is actively organizing what there is. And this is part of the search for meaning. It begins with the child perceiving his or her mother and the objects around. It continues with our building up a perceptual world around us so that we can behave in it. We can know how to relate to it. We can know how to get food, how to relate to others, how to work, how to, how to uh, find a, a partner in life and so on. But there is no stopping of this. We perhaps don't need you know, to survive, don't need to know what happens in the far galaxies. 
But once you see this, see the starry sky above, the inquiring mind doesn't stop. It says, what does it mean? You see, so science and philosophy and poetry and literature basically is based on wondering, on on asking, what is there? What does it mean? And that's the basic question that I've always asked myself, you know, ever since I was in my late teens. And that's the kind of a search to which I've dedicated myself. You also wrote, error is the price paid for learning. So as we make mistakes, we learn. <laughs> well, if you wouldn't make mistakes, there will be two possibilities. Either we already know everything perfectly, or we just don't recognize our mistakes. And I think the latter is more likely to be the case. So uh, since we can't possibly know everything there is and know it perfectly, we better recognize that every once in a while we make false guesses and then we ask ourselves, how can we correct that? And that's, the, that's learning. Learning is really learning to uh, act better, to think better on the basis of what you tried and the errors that you're making. Looking at the world that we live in now, and you're talking about, you know, you've done, you've, you read and you've read and, and you've written many books. And today we have a young generation rising that uh, essentially uh, doesn't read. Uh, what about that? Well, reading is one way of getting information. There are other ways. I mean, listening to radio is another way of getting information. Yes, of course. Uh, but uh, there is something about the written word that is somehow very concrete and it's, it's, you can hold it in your hand. We thought that some time ago that the office would be paperless. We thought that nobody's going to print books, you're going to listen to books or, or going to turn it on into images. And I don't think it disappears. I have particularly a, a very close affinity to books and to, and to articles and to reading. But I think it's, it's a great advantage. You have to read even on the instructions on a, on a package of, uh, of grocery that you're getting, not to mention the instruction on, a, on, on something that you buy and it turns out that you have to put it together yourself because it costs all this assembled from the <laughs> store. <laughs> and, uh, Sometimes just to open a, a, a box of peanuts, you have to find out which, which side you have to pull. You know? so, <laughs> uh, but to be more serious, you know, uh, the world today is full of, uh, uh, full of instructions, full of ways in which we have to orient ourselves, full of surprises also. And one way of orienting ourselves in a, in a tangible way is to read. The, uh, as the world gets more complex, uh, really, uh, there's some desire to want it to be more simple. I mean, really, aren't the answers simple? Aren't there simple answers? All complexity is generated from simplicity. So if you find the basis for it, you know, the mathematics is, for example, all about finding the basis, how, how you can generate things. There have been formulas, for example, that show this so-called cellular automata theory in that John von Neumann has started. We can say, if you can say some X number of a few number of different things in, in the world in front of you. It could be like in a gaming board. And then you have some rules. When A and B meet, then where do they go? Do they meet also C or do they avoid C and go to a D, etc.? These are the basic rules. And these are algorithms. And computers operate on that basis. So all the complexity around us can be traced back to some very basic rules of interaction. Now, in our mind... You don't have to be a mathematician to find these because in our mind we can look for kinds of things. For example, we can look at interactions which are purely mechanical. 
We can look at interactions that are based on information. You know. We can look at many things at the same time and how they act, or we can look at one thing and how it relates to the other things. So there are some very basic ways of looking at the world. It's been known as the, as the uh, materialistic way of looking at the world, as the idealistic way of looking at the world, as the organic way, you know, uh, vitalistic way, and so on. These basic assumptions are relatively simple, and they are fundamental, and if we understand them, then we know which ones to choose, how to choose, how to evolve it, in order to understand what the whole world is about. I'm speaking with Irvin Laszlo, author of The Chaos Point, The World of the Crossroads, and another book entitled Science and the Akashic Field, An Integral Theory of Everything. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Irvin Laszlo. Irvin's the author of The Chaos Point, The World at the Crossroads. And Irvin, before we took the break, uh, you were talking about four ways of seeing the world. And are these fours enough? Or are there other ways? I think we have to be careful about how we select our worldviews. There was a very different worldview underlying the free market economy where everybody can do what they want and everybody is, is free to act as long as you don't break a law. It was a very different view underlying communism, which says that we are all moving toward an egalitarian communist society, which under the vanguard of a single party. <clears throat> they were, uh, and there's a very different worldview underlying the major religions, the Western monotheistic religions and Eastern religions. <clears throat> We do need a worldview, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not. We do need to order, organize things around us to orient ourselves in the world. And this worldview better be consistent. If you are just mixing various kind of apples and oranges together in it, you'll find constantly surprises, you'll constantly mysteries cropping up. And as it is, they do crop up, but we should try to be clear about uh, how we approach the world. So I am not suggesting that we should mix up to to many different kinds of worldviews. I'm suggesting that there are views, or let's say there is even, I would say, a, a kind of a worldview which is much more appropriate to our times and to what we're beginning to know about the world than others. The essential characteristics of this worldview is that it's integral, that it deals with the world as an interconnected system or whatever else you might want to call it, as, as, as essential, not made up as a medley of or a potpourri of several things just loosely hanging together. It is made up more like a giant organism, almost like a living organism. The biosphere is a whole, as a whole organism, all things are part of it. We are belonging to it, our, our, our nation, our company, our community are all integrated systems around us. And so is our galaxy, so is the whole universe. And this, this we find now from the sciences. So what we need, I think, today is a worldview that's based on connection, on interaction together 
into these large holes that that behave as 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 single almost whole systems sometimes the notion of oneness belonging to belongingness describes it very well and that these things are not static they are dynamic they are evolving all the time if you have these basic concepts in mind you'll find that the universe makes sense that the world around you makes sense that your life is beginning to make sense in order for that to happen one needs to be in relationship with others one needs to recognize um that i am the other that the other is me uh and yet we have i think many millions of people that kind of you know isolate themselves and don't don't see that connection well sometimes uh what the the root of the problem is is egoism such as level of self-centeredness that the other around us is retreating into the, into the background because it doesn't count i mean i'm not really interested in the other one only insofar as it helps me achieve my own goals this level of self-centeredness egoism is what uh, is underlying uh, the tremendous progress that we have made in economics in in the economy in technology and so on but it's also creating this what is known as side effect and the side effects are getting increasingly pernicious these days they are, they are destroying the integrity of our ecosystems they are creating gaps between the rich and the poor uh they we are isolating uh, the increasingly the people who are who are the holders of power from the others so we better find ourselves back again in a community which the traditional cultures always have the great religions were always telling uh, that we are living in a community the whole world as a community and so this relationship i think finding ourselves back again in a relationship of which we are truly a part is i think absolutely essential these days one of the things you've written about urban is is about the the nature of uh trends and the future and you you yourself uh, are someone who's looking at the what what are the possible futures and um the you you said the future is not to be forecast but created and we cre- and so it implies that we create the future at the same time there's all these various trend trend forecast trend forecast trends that are based on linear trends what about that Well, a great lesson to be learned from this evolutionary perspective systems perspective a holistic perspective that I'm talking about is that we realize that development change cannot go on forever cannot go on forever in the same space pace in the same way with the same kind of processes you can extrapolate using trends trend forecasting for a while because you have the same drivers you know before you, uh, you if you buy a new a new printer you have to install a driver to it you know you buy another printer you need another driver for it and you get this sudden changes from one to the other because in in society and in nature as well you all of a sudden have new conditions and you have to learn how to cope with them so the fact of the matter is that a complex system will evolve up to a given point linearly and then it'll follow its trends then reaches a point which is the point of non-return which i call the point of chaos or chaos point at that point these trends break down new trends will appear but we have to learn how to cope with them so some of those some of those drivers are unsustainability of current distribution of wealth in the world the unsustainability of affluent consumption the unsustainability of current distribution of 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 global financial systems 
in global in global financial systems, uh, unsustainability of established social structures, unsustainability of human load on nature. These are all drivers. Well, the drivers are, as you say, keynoted by the concept of unsustainability. If this world would be sustainable, the system in which we are living and that we have created would be sustainable, there'll be no real need to change. We just have to know how to manage it better. But because the system is not sustainable, we have one very basic rule. If we continue as we are with it, it will reach a point where the system breaks down. Whether you look at the ecology, whether you look at, you look at the rich-poor gap, whether you look at conditions in on, on low-lying areas which may be flooded in, in the next few years, uh, whether you look at the situation of accessibility of water or health conditions in big cities, whatever you look at, the so-called BAU scenario, B-A-U, which is the business-as-usual scenario, tells you that in a matter of years, if we don't change, the system around us is going to enter into a crisis. Being in chaos, in a world of chaos, which often, as we look outside, we see a chaotic world. But in, in chaos theory, where you reach a point of chaos, the stable point, as you point out, and periodic att attractors of our system will be joined by chaotic or strange attractors. Now, that, it's like an interesting statement. It needs to be explained. Can, can you explain it? Because what it implies is that as we operate in chaos, that there's some kind of a universal system that is magnetically attracting what, ne what needs to happen. Can you well, this notion of attractors comes from system simulation, and they're made possible by very fast, complex computers. So we can enter in a number of parameters into them, and we see how the system evolves. And we see that the certain patterns are emerging in the evolution of the system. We measure certain parameters in them, and these patterns can be described. And the way they are described, these are circular or helical, or, or they converge onto a point, or they are linear. Uh, and these are described then by so-called attractors. They say that the attractors are pulling the system in a certain way. These are complex relationships, dynamic relationships within the system. Now, when it turns out that we run a system, a complex system, with this kind of periodic or stable attractors, then after a while, these, the relationships become chaotic. And then something else happens. New patterns emerge. And the simulators say that they emerge out of the blue. You can't actually deduce from the pre pre previous condition of the system how the next attractor is going to come about. It emerges, and the system enters into another mode. Now, one thing I want to emphasize, not only is it impossible to drive the system the same way before at this point, but it's also possible to drive it in a very different way, very simply and very, very sensitively, because the system becomes extremely sensitive. You know, when you have a stable system by the stable attractors, then you hardly can change the dynamics. In a society which is very stable, like during the Middle Ages, if you were innovative, if you set a new, had a new idea, then you were excommunicated, so to speak. And any kind of a stable system, if you go beyond the limits of the system, you're put in jail or you're put, in, put into a madhouse, you know. So now, but we have an unstable system. Innovative ideas all of a sudden have a value. Because maybe that's what you need. You're looking today for alternative sources of energy, alternative lifestyles, value systems, political systems, economic systems, because we know that the current system needs to change. And we are 
fortunately, in a, in, in a sense, living at a time in which innovation has a real value and innovation is becoming possible. I find myself being, in a sense, excited and happily excited, motivated, and living in a semi-chaotic system. I would find a totally stable system very boring. You've written about one of the things that goes on in this world, and you've touched on this in your own writings. Uh, the business world, there's the um, there are a number of major think tanks that deal with scenario planning, and uh, I'm just trying to connect it to your work of the breakdown scenario and the breakthrough scenario. Um, and these scenarios often are looking at different possibilities as to what can happen, but they're based on 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 global business. Um, so I'd like to have you talk about the breakdown scenario and the breakthrough scenario and, and the, the, the relativity to the business world. The difference between uh, one kind of system and another, in the same way as between breakdown and breakthrough, is being made by our values and by our worldviews. We talked about worldviews a moment ago. I think the relevance is there that we act differently according to the kind of picture that we have of the world around us and of ourselves in the world. Now, in a, in a breakdown scenario, when you reach this chaos point, we continue to act in the time-honored way, which may have worked in the past, but doesn't work again at, at the point of irreversibility, at this tipping point. For example, when you have a point of conflict, and this can be an economic conflict, can be a, a cultural conflict, human conflict of some kind. And in the past, you said, okay, you have to apply more money, more technology, and more force to these things. And then the power, powerful and the wealthy will pull out all these resources and will try to, to put its own point of view across to resolve the conflict in its own way, according to its own values. In a chaotic situation, uh, this can have unforeseen side effects. The side effects become more powerful than the main effects. They completely can overwhelm it. We know, for example, that you have a conflict situation if you're trying to apply force, whether it's called exporting a democracy or wiping out terrorism or whatever, it turns out that there are unex unexpected side effects. It simply doesn't work. You expect it to work. Many, many ways that we are doing in, in the world that we are, we sh cannot, should not continue acting the same way as we did up till now. So we have to switch from a breakdown to a breakthrough scenario. I'm speaking with Irvin Laszlo, author of The Chaos Point, The World of the Crossroads. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Irvin Laszlo, 
Irwin is the author of Science and the Reenchantment of the Cosmos and The Chaos Point, The World at the Crossroads, and Science in the Akashic Field, An Integral Theory of Everything, plus a host of other books as well. Irvin, as someone who's been working in the sciences as you have for so many years and and with your vast experience and and and, and your inter- and also your involvement in other cultures as well, um, I wonder the relevance of your work in the sciences and the need to shift to a positive uh, positive development. Can you talk about that? So what's needed? Well, there are two major changes that are occurring simultaneously. Are world around us is changing, and this is the, the terrain that, that we are concerned with, is shifting under our feet, as we know very well now, from political situations, from ecological situations, from cultural problems, etc. And at the same time, our map of the world is shifting, not only the terrain, but the way we map it. And the way we map it is uh, through experiments through observation, which is pulled together in the various sciences. But often these sciences are operating in a separate way. Scientists in different disciplines are so specialized they can hardly talk to each other. I'm trying to pull together our changing map of the world and apply it to the changing world around us. And the, uh, the basic point that I've come across is this, that in the sciences now, increasingly we're becoming aware of the fact that we are not in any real sense separate from each other. We are connected. There are some beautiful expressions of that as we go way back, like William James, for example, has said that we are like islands in the sea. And normally you would think islands in the sea are separate, but then he pointed out, yes, they are separate on the surface, but they're connected in the depths. The same way as trees in a forest, they seem to be separate uh, uh, tree trunks and branches, but their roots intermingle. So in that sense, we are rediscovering at a deeper level that our connections to each other. And these connections are based on energy and are based on information, as we have talked before. So there are very real connections, the sense of connect connection to other people, of other cultures even, the sense of connection to nature, this increasingly uh, uh, emphasized concept of becoming one with, you know, nature and with the the world around us. All this has real roots now emerging from the new physics, from the new cosmology, from the new biology, and the new researches on consciousness. And I think that is the key, to discover that our sense of connection is not purely imaginary. It's not something to be dismissed. It is there, it is real, it's to be cultivated. One of the things that you wrote about uh, in The Chaos Point was that we need to give up uh, obsolete beliefs and flawed conceptions. And you had a whole list of those uh, that these are beliefs that we hold that uh, we need to let go of. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that? Well, what we do is very, op- is very much dependent on what we believe in and what, how we look at the world, what our values are. We are cultural animals. We don't just go by instinct. And, and just because we are reaching now this point or this tipping point or this chaos point, the beliefs that worked well up till now no longer are beginning not to work anymore. You know, a couple of beliefs. We have had this idea that nature is for all practical purposes inexhaustible. It's for all practical purposes infinite. We can take out whatever we want from nature. We can throw back into it anything you want. In the past, it does did look 
logical that this looked to be really the case. I mean, how could a smaller group of people, humans, not numbering to billions, uh, and, and living in smaller communities, believe that what they threw into the oceans would start polluting the water? that the smoke that they produced would somehow start polluting the whole atmosphere around us. After all, the water, the water got washed away, the dirt in the smoke, the air, uh, uh, smoke dispersed in the air. Even, even not so long ago, we just put it into a high smokestack and said, well, if you put it up high enough, then it won't bother us anymore, it'll go away. And now this belief doesn't work because it turns out that the entire biosphere is a single finite system. Whatever you do to one part of it reacts to the other. It all circulates back. So whatever we do to nature, we do ultimately to ourselves. Well, another belief is very, very prominent belief is that we can just pursue our own selfish ends. If you are successful in achieving our ends, some, so, somehow or other, this is going to benefit others. This is a belief that is often ascribed to, not quite correctly, to Adam Smith, who was talking about the invisible hand. And the notion was that if you operate on a, in a market system, when, when if, you, if you play the market and if you achieve your objectives, the market is going to distribute benefits to all people. And this has worked quite well until the powerful and the rich started getting more and more concentration, got so many chips in their hands, that the market no longer worked equitably for all. So at this point, there is a concentration of riches. The recent statistics says that in the U.S., uh, the richest 300,000 people, I believe, are earning on the average 440 times more than half, the poorer half of the U.S. population. Never has been such a large gap. And worldwide, the gap, of course, is even larger. We, we now have you know, half of the world population living on the average of $3 a day or less, half of the world population. So in this case, we have to recognize that we have to act more equitably. We have to think about the effects of what we are doing and not simply trust to a market mechanism, which is, which is working, but is essentially short-range. It only operates on the basis of the next phase of our operations, uh, next accounting period, uh, and the immediate market effect. And if you keep playing for those, then yes, the rich are going to, for a while, get richer. But it's going to generate such a lot of frustration, such a lot of poverty, that the system within which we operate, even the rich within which the rich operate too, is going to start to break down. So again, it's a whole system's view as opposed to a partial one. Yes. This is, has been a problem with uh, classical medicine, which is another case where we have to shift to a more organic approach, where you look at the whole body, at the whole individual in his or her uh, settings, social, economic, ecological setting, how this individual lives, and recognize that an individual can be out of, out of whack, out of sync with, it, with his or her environment, and that can generate problems. What can people listening to what you have to say, what can individuals do in their own local communities? What, what can people do? Do you have anything to say about that? What ideas you might have for that? Well, a great many things one can do, but you have to trust the individuals to find them. This is not just a subterfuge. I could go on for hours about that, but about specific things. But the basic thing is simple. As we talked before, this, there is a simple answer to things. The basic thing is to... Remember that 
the way you pursue your interest has to be compatible with the well-being of others around you and with the well-being of nature. You cannot live beyond the means of what it, what it is possible for you to live. Let me give you just one very, very brief example. I'm not saying that it applies to everybody. It applies to us collectively. We know that there is a certain a number of, of acreage that we can use for each individual in the world so that the planet continues to be fertile to support the human population. We now know that the so-called ecological footprint that individuals use is very, very uneven. On the, on the whole, in the world, we, ex, we, ex, we exceed the ecological footprint that the Earth could support by about one-third. But if all people would live the way the average individual lives in North America, then we would not exceed it just by one-third. Then we would need four other planets the size of the Earth to maintain sustainably you know, the biological productivity of, this, of, of the planet. So we have to see that we make the best possible efficient use of the resources around us. Cut down on waste. Use the technologies that are there that are, that are calling for minimum uh, exploitation of irreversible resources, of, of exhaustible resources. Many, many things that the human mind is fantastically inventive. There are many things around us that we could do to live in a sustainable manner. Just ask yourself, is what I'm doing, is how I'm eating, is how I'm heating, uh, heating my home, is how I'm driving, is how I'm communicating, compatible with many people living on the earth. You've written about there's a window of time between now and 2012. And so here we are. Uh, this is the spring of 2007, uh, five years. So why is this window of time important right now? Why is it important? What can people, this, this particular opportunity? Well, we're moving toward a system that is no longer sustainable in its present form. And this is, I sometimes use the analogy to this, is like riding a bike. You ride a bike, and if this hill, that you're, the path that you are riding on goes upwards, it comes more and more heavy to, to ride it. You reach a given point in which you can no longer for, go forward. Then what happens? You can't go backwards. You can't ride the bike backwards unless you're an acrobat. You, then you either find a path that you can take where you can go forward, which is not so difficult as the one that you were on, or you fall off. And this is what's happening around us. We either find another path or we destroy the system in which we are, we are operating. So we are close to that point, and that point will be reached sometime in the future, probably in the lifetime of most of us. We don't know exactly when. When you look at individual projections, people say 2040, 2050, but these are getting shorter. People, conditions of water, for example, that were foreseen for 2050 are now set 2020. When you look at cross impacts, it gets even shorter. So I say, let's think of that basic prophecy that 2012 will be a significant year in human history. And let's think that by that time, we have got to create conditions through which we can sustainably go forward. May it be so. Urban, thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It has been my pleasure, Michael. I've been speaking with Irvin Laszlo, author of The Chaos Point, The World at the Crossroads, published by Hampton Roads in paperback. My name is Michael Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3203.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.